Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Before we start today's podcast, a quick heads up on Sherlock's VIP club. From restaurants, bars and hotels to beauty, wellness and shopping, Sherlock's partners with some of London's best destinations and hottest brands to bring its VIPs exclusive monthly offers. So why not sign up? It'll cost you just £5 a month or £50 for the year. Use your card once or twice and you'll have made that amount back in no time. For more information, visit sherlocksvip.com. Ten years ago, Monica Benedict set up her eponymous brand with her sister, Gabriella, aiming to fill the gap between fine and fashion jewellery. From engraving to stacking and layering, Monica has created a jewellery line with individuality at its core. Winning Jewellery Brand of the Year in 2009, Monica Benedict is now a global brand employing more than 200 people with a turnover of over £40 million. Monica, welcome to your Sherlock's success story. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you Here for having we are. me. Well, thank you for having us to your beautiful offices in Norfolk. For anyone listening, it's a very sunny, dreamy day and we are in the English countryside and it's very lovely. I it's very see. rural. Yeah, very rural. <laughs> I can smell cut grass and I can can see why it's very appealing to work here. You're Spanish, Monica, but you did your A-levels at school in England. How did that happen? So yes, I did. I had quite a, I suppose, global international education. I went to the French Lycée in Madrid. My father was lecturing at the London Business School and my mother was buying antiques for her business in London. So we used to come to England a lot. And because I didn't do English at school because I was doing French, I had to supplement my learning. So they would send me to the summer in various families to learn English. And eventually I went and did my A-levels. The real reason was that my parents wanted me to go to university in the UK. There was always a strong connection. So I essentially moved when I was 16 and I've never really gone back. I'm now a British national. I have a company in the UK. My daughter's British also. And that has been a long time ago now. Well, lucky us, because we wouldn't have you here otherwise. So you left school, you did your A-levels. Yes. And I went to City and Guilds Art School for four years. I studied decorative arts and fine arts. And I went to work in an art gallery because I thought I wanted to work in museums and art galleries. And completely by fluke, as often happens in life, the director of the gallery said, oh, I have a friend who's setting up a company. He's just left Merrill Lynch. And it happened to be a jewellery company. I did not know that's what he did. His office was around the corner from me on Hollywood Road. And I just took the job. I started designing and running press and sales and traveling to Japan and Paris. And and I really started learning with him how to produce jewelry. I went to Birmingham. I went to the jewelry making district. I learned about casting, about stone cutting. It was an amazing time for me because sometimes these coincidental situations are fantastic. And it was really a good start for me. And he was great to work with, actually. He was very dynamic. And had you wanted to work in jewelry? Not really, no. I really thought I was going to be in an art gallery environment or I had this idea that I could be a museum curator which was always sort of my idea my passion so complete accident 
So you went to Tatwasien and you spent how long there? I was there for almost three years, I think. And you thought you'd stay there, you'd move through the ranks. What did you think would happen next? And what did happen next? Well, I really wanted to design my own collections under my own name, which I did mention to him. I sort of had always entrepreneurial streak that I sort of wanted to fulfill. But at that time, my then boyfriend, who's now my husband, had an idea to go and travel and do this job with him in the travel industry, in the sort of fly fishing travel industry. So I actually did something quite odd and I just left everything, left London and went to work with him. And we actually did that for close to 12, 14 years. So I changed careers, but continued to design and make my own jewellery throughout all those years, but not in a sort of actively as a career. So you were designing for private customers, were you, at this point? Well, at that point, I wasn't. But eventually, when we moved to Norfolk, uh, during the off-seasons where we're not travelling, we bought a house in Norfolk and we moved to Norfolk. And during the summers, because we had this beautiful building next to my house, this converted forge that was sitting empty, my husband thought, well, why don't you use it to sell your jewellery? And I thought, oh, that sounds like a great idea. So I started a mini sideline business whilst I was also working abroad. I had a few people looking after it during the year when I was away. And then I would come in the summer and really work with it and do events and curate sort of shopping parties and people used to come. And what was the product like in that business? So we did, we had jewellery, we Mm -hmm. had interiors, we did candles and I started really doing bespoke jewellery and then I started doing a few lines that I sold through Liberties and the Conrad shop. So I started getting the flavour of would I want to start doing wholesale? Like, you know, I had understood when, when I was working for Tatiosia. And I suppose what was really interesting about that time is that I had so many women come through my door looking through my drawers of gemstones because I've always kept drawers full of gemstones and materials. And we used to create bespoke things together. And I think I really got a kind of flavor for what women wanted and how they wanted to shop for jewelry. They wanted jewelry that was accessible for them to shop frequently and wear all the time, but that was good enough and quality enough to have meaning and I think that's when I started developing Vermeil because gold was too expensive for like that frequent purchase and they were buying for themselves and it was very clear for me that they were self-purchasing and that was really the same as me I was buying my own jewelry Mm. they were working women and they were buying for them for their daughters or for gifting and to wear literally all the time and that sense of joy of what how they were working on those commissions with me but also understanding how they wanted to wear it was really important so I started experimenting with Vermeil my mother still had her antique business in Madrid and she had an amazing jeweler that made a lot of her jewellery and he helped me develop the technique with him and I knew about Vermeil from all of her antique objects. For people listening that yes. might yeah, no. not know exactly so what Vermeil, Vermeil is. Yeah, Vermeil is sterling silver, solid silver that is hallmarked and then it's plated in 18 karat gold with a three micron thick sort of layer so it's very very durable, it's a really beautiful product, it's very qualitative but you make the piece in exactly the same way as you would make solid gold. It's the same technique for setting, the same kind of qualities. So you get the fine jewellery craftsmanship, but you don't have the sort of really steep prices. So it allowed me to bring in a fair price that women can purchase and repurchase and gift and self-purchase. 
Going back to this business that was on the yeah. side that became your business, yes. were you selling it under the brand name Monica Vinader? Yes, I was selling then. it under Monica Vinader. It was my name. It was Design Studio. And at that point, when I came back from my last sort of two jobs were in Argentina and the Bahamas combined. And we came back, had children. So I had a tiny baby. And, and that's when I went to my sister and said, look, I think that we've got potentially this great business. This is the idea to really be able to build a business at scale to reach a lot of people, but not compromise on quality and design. Because I think we are about great design, great quality and personalization at the core of what we do. So she really started thinking about this. And her first edict was, well, when you reach, you know, over half a million in turnover, I'll quit my job at Amazon. So that was the sort of the first pass. And she started helping me behind the scenes with things like VAT returns. And, and what was her role at Amazon? She'd been in Amazon for a very long time. She was right. quite senior at Amazon and she'd gone to Amazon from Merrill Lynch. So, you know, from her Merrill Lynch background and her background at Boston Consulting, she built a fantastic business plan. I mean, it really was. It was a 10-year plan. It was fabulous. And we really set out a very clear route and a very clear vision. And I suppose our pinky promise between the two of us of how we were going to run this business with our integrity and what we were not going to compromise on. And I think that's always been the thread behind everything that we've done, that sort of integrity of quality, of design, of the customer focus, and really thinking about the customer, but being able to reach a lot of women with at a fair price and making sure that we really all understood that a lot of people appreciate good quality and good design. And at what year was it that you convinced her to join the So business? she finally did officially join in 2008. And then it was a tricky year because the minute she joined, it was, okay, let's raise some funds. So we started doing friends and family and 2008, no one was lending us any money, of course. And so we ended up borrowing from the bank and mortgaging our house in Norfolk which is why Norfolk is such a key part of what we do. <laughs> and we really raised enough with that mortgage to buy stock for that first Christmas. We focused on product development and inventory to have a really good Christmas and prove to ourselves that we could sell and continue to fuel the business. So that was the sort of our first really step when we joined forces. And how had you built up that customer base over well, those years? Well, at the time, you know, I was here only in the summers. So I was working abroad for the most part of the year. So we did a lot of events. We used to hold parties and we used to do put flies in the local hotels and do collaborations with Norfolk has quite a lot of summer tourists and influx of people. And it sort of became a destination. People would drive in, have to spend the day. And it was it's a really beautiful place, a bit like this. So they used to come and hang around and shop. I can see why, yeah. Yeah. So in 2008, you went yes. to the bank. Your friend yes. said no, the bank said yes. The bank said yes. You got a big mortgage. And what did you do with the money that you raised in 2008? So it was actually a very small mortgage. We were quite cautious because we've always sort of only raised as much as we've needed and we could use. So... We were cautious. We spent pretty much all of our money on product and inventory. The idea was that if we could have a really successful Christmas in 2008, we can then continue to fuel the business. There was no point spending it on you know, other, anything else. So we really focused on that. We had a good Christmas. Mm -hmm. And after Christmas, we were seriously bootstrapping. My sister at the time used to approve any expense over £60. £60? Who yep. came up with £60 as the magic number? <laughs> 
<laughs> that was her magic number. So cash flow was really, really tight. So it was really good discipline for yeah. us because we obviously learned about managing things very, very tightly, which is always, I think, a good discipline. Mm. But yeah, there were tough years because, you know, we had mortgaged our house and it was risky. So, I mean, when we paid it off, I was really relieved. Yes, I'm sure. Yeah. So 2008 was a success. Yeah. How many pieces were in the collection at that point? Do you remember? Do you know, I don't, but not that many. I mean, Gabby was very, very strong at controlling my creative sort of need for making too many things. And that was one of her main roles was to keep that inventory under control. And tell me more about your differing roles. I mean, it sounds like you're the dream team with your creative hat and her you know, business experience that she bought from Amazon yeah. from Merrill Lynch. What are the differing skills that you've had and so why think, do you think that's worked? I think what's worked is that we're both very entrepreneurial and very dynamic and we have very, very strong shared values but I think in terms of our interests, we're very complementary, we're very different. So I look after more the design, the brand, marketing, and sort of the vision, whether she's much more focused on financials, HR, digital, and ops, really. And so we always divided and conquered. So we sort of agreed not to double up because in order to get so much done, we just couldn't double up. And because we trust each other implicitly, it has worked incredibly well. And we've got now this shorthand of communication, which works well. And have there been moments when you thought, oh my God, running a business with my sister was not a good idea. Would you advise other people to go into business with their family members? Well, it depends. Depends <laughs> on what their relationship is. I can think of lots of siblings that shouldn't go into business together. Yeah, there have been moments I think she probably has wanted to kill me multiple times, more than I have wanted to kill her. But overall, I think it's been incredibly positive. So 2008, you funded the business, you raised some money. Have you raised more money since? What's, yes, What's the done... journey of fundraising look like people are always interested to hear? We've done three more rounds. So we've done a round with a VC in 2009 that we did another round and then we just finished a round two and a half years ago with private equity called Piper in the UK and Winona Capital in Chicago. We're with private equity now. For us, I think it's been a very positive experience all around. I think the way we've done it has worked for us for whatever reason it's worked well. I think we've been lucky. We've had some really good investors that have added a lot and have been helpful in kind of helping us through our journey and our progression so no it's been very positive any advice for people raising money raise what you need and raise more that's always my advice mm -hmm. because I think you want to keep control of your baby to a degree I think if you dilute yourself too early it can get tricky do your due diligence get really good advice get the terms right make sure that you really like the people that you're working with and that they bring something to the table and yeah, just don't raise money when you really, really need it. Raise money when it's a bonus rather than when you're in desperate need. Talk to us more about the design process. So you are the creative head in the yeah. business. Yeah. For someone that isn't, what does that process look like? So you've seen sort of a quick glimpse at the team. It's a big team. So the design process is really owned by a lot of people. Although I am the head of creative, there's a head of design, which I'll introduce you to, Amber, who's been with us for eight years. And she has the creative team with her. But the way the NPD, the new product development team works, is how the product comes about. And it's a mixture of commercial and creative. It's a really good balance of the two. I have a very sort of balanced creative and commercial brain. And I think the way that we've constructed the NPD team is to reflect that. So we've got really strong people working on the architecture, strong people on pricing, costing, really understanding the negotiations with the suppliers and working with them to get the best quality at the best prices and really understanding how that plays out within our regions and our markets, understanding what our customers are buying and what they want. And then really behind all of that is the sort of creativity, the inspiration, 
which for us is, I think, as a very design and quality-led company, it's really important because for me, that original design is what really is different about mm. us. The fact that we really care about every millimeter, about the originality of the inspiration. We don't really look at fashion. We're always kind of looking at art or architecture and really being inspired by original sketches. And that creativity comes through mm. and that obsession with quality when we cutting our stones and the way we really, really sweat every detail so the piece is really wearable, is wear tested. So that whole team delivers that. So it's a real team effort. But it wasn't. Back in the day, it was you. And I'm sort of sitting here and I'm looking yeah. at everything you're wearing going, oh, I want that and I want that. And well, your yeah. DNA is so strong, as you say. You, everything you see is so Monica Vinader. It doesn't look like yeah, any other brand. Where, where's that inspiration <laughs> come about, from? We talk about that a lot because I feel that, you know, my team have Monica Vinader running through their veins, maybe more than I do these days. It's quite interesting because it's become a thing and we talk about it a lot and we talk about, is this MV, is this not? And I think that whole aesthetic that I created, the sort of simplicity, the idea of less is more and that timelessness about our jewellery that comes from the originality of the design and also the simplicity of the lines and the balance that makes it feel both timeless but also a little bit vintage because that quality of design feels quite vintage. Mm. I think that is something that the team kind of live and breathe every day. I mean, definitely I started this on my own, but I mean, Amber's been with me eight years now, so it's a long time. And then there's a lot of newer members of the team and the team has grown a lot, but they work very closely together and they deliver it as a team, which is really kind of amazing to watch how they all sort of mesh in with each other and, and make it all happen. And in the early days when you were coming up with your inimitable bracelets, for example, yes. where did that idea come from? Well, different things have come from different places. The friendship bracelets, the idea of the corded was I always hankered after all this kind of finds on the streets in Mallorca and, you know, you just come back full of corded bracelets from your holiday. And I wanted to be able to incorporate that look into something a little bit more put together, but still quite fun. Mm -hmm. And I think the whole premise of my brand is that it's about luxury every day. It's about wearing jewelry every day. I was not interested in just, just for best or, you know, but I wanted it to last. So a corded bracelet on its own doesn't last. So I wanted to bring other elements that were precious, that were silver, that were really considered, but that felt more of a fully kind of made up piece. And that's when I came up with a Fiji bracelet, which essentially is half cord, half silver. Mm. And you could wear every day, but you can have a pop of color and it feels a little bit more relaxed, a little bit cooler, a little bit more fun. Mm. And I wanted that sort of fun way of wearing a corded bracelet. You talked a lot about the quality. Mm. How do you keep it affordable but maintain the quality? I mean, you've also mentioned Vermeil. Is that a volume game? So I think Vermeil is a key for us to deliver a luxury product that is at a fair price that a lot of people can access for sure. I think for us, the quality is not just the materials, although it's a big part of it, but it's the quality of the design and the integrity behind that design. So I think what we have been able to do as we have grown, we've been able to improve on that quality on a few fronts. One, because with more purchasing power with our workshops, we can actually ask for better quality, which mm. has been amazing. So we've been able to really drive better gemstones, better settings, better everything. So that has been an incredible journey. Sure. We've also been able to work really closely with our supply chain in working more sustainably and more responsibly. And that has been 
quite key for our quality. I think that's quality for me as well. It's the quality of how we behave Mm -hmm. and it's the quality of how we treat everybody and how we look at our supply chain. So we've been able to put in amazing audits and improve the conditions of everyone that works with us as well as the way that we work. We've been able to look at where the traceability of our silver, of our gemstones, of our diamonds. We've been able to really work with local charities. So we've been in a position by growing and having more volume to do better and to have better quality of everything, not just of the materials, but of the way we work. And I think that has been one of the most exciting things about growing. The premise for me that quality and good design would never be compromised with volume was absolutely key. But in fact, my surprise is that we'd actually been able to do better because we have more of a voice and we have more power. Mm. So that has been fantastic. So we're now able to choose partners that are really ethical and that think like us who responsibly make things. And the change in the last few years has been amazing. And actually, we're driving a really big sustainable project within the company across lots of other touch points, including, you know, rehauling our packaging, reducing our plastics, but also with our supply chain with stones and silver, which is really, really exciting. So I think we've been able to up the quality rather than the other way around. I think the last point with quality is that we're learning, so we know more. And now I know more about diamonds. I know more about gemstones. So the more you know, the better you can make things. So true. Where is most of it made? All of our stones are cut in Jaipur. The same people that have been cutting my stones from even before I joined forces with my sister. Is that right? Yes, because that was part of the premise is that I did not want to buy stones. I needed to cut my own stones to have that original design behind everything. So the same teams are still cutting our stones, the same people, they're still saying, I cut your first stone eight years, 10 years ago. It's amazing. I mean, I went to Jaipur a a few months ago and this guy came up to me and said, I was the first one that cut the first stone. And (laughs) he was so excited. So we do make a lot there and and then a little bit in Thailand and Mumbai as well. And how key was price point to you in those early days, we talked about how the fact you bridged a gap between fashion and fine jewellery and the price point was really a novelty. The price point is everything for us. I think for us, the value for money aspect of what we do to be able to bring fantastic design, fantastic quality that is value for money that a customer can repurchase and purchase again is 100% the core of what we do. So it's got to be accessible enough that she can repeat purchase and she can self-purchase, but it's got to be quality enough that it has a meaning. And that to us was always the core of our business. And that was the premise upon which I convinced my sister and I pinky swore that that's what we were going to do. Because if it's not affordable, if you can't wear it every day, to me, there was less of an attraction. And I thought that's what I wanted for myself. And I thought that's what our consumer wanted. Absolutely. And I think it reflects our core customer and who she is. I think it reflects very much what she's after. We speak to her need for that personalization and making her feel like she can wear it every day. And I think we really tick that box for her. And I think our demographic is, you know, we've got customers of definitely all ages, but I suppose, you know, our core customer is probably between 25 and 45. So I think that is quite an evolution as well for her when she starts and then starts gifting her friends and, you know, children and, and it kind of goes on. But I think that value for money is really important. And she definitely tells us that that's what she wants. And that is what means to her so that she can really access it every day. And that becomes the joy of buying into our brand. So you can. What were the first pieces that you launched that are still in the collection today? 
Well, I think the Marie pendant, the Fiji bracelet are probably some of the earlier ones that are still in the collection. I think I did a lot of large sort of cocktail rings that are no longer in the collection. I did some stacking rings that are in the collection in a sort of a version of, they've sort of evolved. But I used to do a lot of stacking rings, which is still one of the core of our brand is the mixing of all the gemstones into a stack. And today, what are the bestsellers that have remained over the years? Well, the Fiji is still in the top 20s. We don't really look at bestseller, but we look at our top 20s on a regular basis. So our top 20s kind of vary, but in that top 20, there are certain things that are pretty much there quite consistently. And then when we launch new things every year, there's something that kind of makes it into the top 20 and kind of adds. So which is why we had to make them top 20, because there's quite a few that are doing well. But it's a mix. It's a mix of Fiji brand bracelets and our Riva ring with the diamonds, our signature bracelet, which does really well, the linear bracelet, which again is adjustable and one size fits all. Those things work really well. And then our Alta bracelet, which I think I showed you with the clasping links so oh, that you which, can customize. Which if and... you're listening, you need to check it out. The necklace is, I've got my eye on that. The Alta, amazing. The Alta yeah, necklace is pretty so, special. Because you can really play with it. You can really make, one day you wear it plain, the other day you put a pendant, then you can just turn it into a wine necklace. It's really fun to play with it depending on what yeah. you want to do. With the big disc, check it out, the Alton necklace. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Mm, HelloFresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do it. Sign up now, and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. MintMobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45, equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. You talked about seasonality when I arrived and how you're not really a seasonal business but you obviously have to launch lots of newness how many products are you making and releasing each month it does vary it does vary some months we will launch I don't know 12 SKUs sometimes we'll launch a bit more a bit less it does depend each drop is very different depending on the collection. So we're doing a series of friendship corded bracelets. We might launch them in sort of six colors, the silver, the rose, and the yellow gold. But every month we feel that what we're launching has enough conviction to tell a story to the customer and to give our customer choices as well. Because I think we are about giving our customer options and choices. But we're not seasonal in, in as much as, of course, we do launch things that have more fitted to summer and winter, but our collections don't just end after a season. That's what I mean by we're not seasonal. From time to time, we do a sort of seasonal drop or a collaboration, but overall, our collections go on for longer. And we obviously discontinue and bring newness all the time. It's an ongoing thing, but it doesn't just last for six months. Yeah, very smart. And when things aren't selling, do you just discontinue them? I remember yep. Emma Bridgewater saying, yes. yep, you just got to cut your losses. That's what TK Maxx is for yep. and move on. Would you yep. say the same if thing? If it doesn't work, it goes. Okay. Yep. And you know, it's sad because they're all our big and we all have put them in there because we think we believe in them and we love them but sometimes we get it wrong sometimes what you love is not what the customer loves and sometimes 
they love it, but they don't love it as much as other things and some things really take over. And I think you yeah. just need to recognize that. Mm-hmm. So they're liked, they're just not adored. <laughs> so, you know, you need to sort of keep bringing new stuff all the time. So you just have to change, change over. How has the business growth looked and gone? Yeah, and have think, there been moments that have been really pivotal for the growth? Yeah, I think they have. I think for sure, you know, as we started raising funds and we first were able to open our own direct-to-consumer boutique, our first boutique, that was a really big difference when we opened in Selfridges and Harrods. That, of course, was pivotal because we had access to a whole new set of customers that we were not talking to and, you know, we were exposed to them. Then when we opened internationally in Hong Kong and then we opened in Dubai and then in the United States and then when we launched with Nordstrom's I think for us it's been quite organic the way we have grown it has been one step on top of the other I think managed to grow our distribution and grow our markets and our regions and add new global destinations I think that has kind of increased our reach definitely opening our first store was amazing because not only was it pivotal from the point of view of having you know, passing trade, but it was also having contact with our consumers and get, getting that interchange and understanding what they were asking. And really in South Molten is where we were able, in our first boutique, we were able to launch our engraving and really give it that as, an, as a service to our customers and offer that. So that really was the beginning of engaging properly with our customers. You mentioned South Molten Streets. That was your first store. That was our first store and it's still there. It's and amazing. that was in what year? It was 2009, I think. And then store growth has gone how and how many stores do you have globally now? So we're about to open our seventh store in London and we have two stores in New York. We just opened our second one on Madison Avenue and we have one in Soho. We have three stores in Hong Kong. Hong Kong was our first international market where we opened stores. Three stores in Dubai and one in Seoul. And we are also in 55 Nordstrom stores, about to be 62. And we're about to open our fifth branded shopping shop in their Manhattan flagship. So that completes. And then we're also in the UK. We have Selfridges, Liberties, Harrods Concessions, which I've been going from 2009, 2010. And what about the web? What kind of a part do web sales play? So the web is probably still our biggest engine of growth and is still and always will be a really huge focus for us. It's what makes us truly global and we ship everywhere. It's really where we can connect with our consumers across the globe, where we can deploy our social media. And, you know, the digital channel is really, really important for us and it continues to grow. And as we open new regions and we open stores in new locations, so the more stores we have in the U.S., the more we are also growing our consumer base in the United States on direct-to-consumer base. And on the subject of digital, you launched around the same time mm. as the birth of social media, really. I mean, how has this impacted the business and the growth of the business? I think hugely, and it's an evolving thing every day. So I think it, it continues to evolve. It's been, from our point of view, it's an amazing way to connect with our customers. So we've been able to listen to them and for them to hear our story and to hear our voice directly. So it's been an incredible, you know, direct link with our consumers. And it continues to play a huge, huge role in everything that we do and in all of our communication plans, for sure. And what about the impact of celebrity, of royals? I know they're quite partial to some Monica Veneta jewellery. Have you really felt the effects of, of that? Cumulatively, yes, we have had the effect. I think we've never sort of seen a lot of people talk about their websites crashing. We've never seen that, but I think we've been lucky that from the beginning we've had amazing people with high profiles wearing us when they've got lots of other choices. So that has given us tons of visibility and and I think consumer confidence. 
And I think it has played a role and continues to play a role. I think for me still, the real joy is when you have someone at a party or someone you don't know and you spot someone in the street wearing Monica Vinader. And for me, that's also mm. almost like the biggest highlight. And that woman is then spreading the word. Word of mouth for, for her is also very important. So that's played a really big role for us. And how has the market changed since you launched? I think it's changed a lot. First of all, I think the self-purchasing female buying her own jewellery and wearing jewellery every day, that sort of trend has really grown. I think when we started, there wasn't so much available and there wasn't so much of a desire. I think that has really turned around. I think women are wearing their diamonds all the time, every day to work. And I think they're buying their own jewellery and it feels quite empowering. The consumer mindset has changed. I also think there are a lot more brands doing it there are more kind of branded jewellery brands out there. So there is more on offer and that is also encouraging the, the behaviour, which is great. So it has changed a lot. And I think it's now a thing, you know, we all buy our own jewellery and mm. whenever we want to, we buy our own diamonds. Too right. Yeah. And you mentioned the competition and that that's a good thing, but how do you deal with it? Because, you know, everyone wants to maintain their market share and everyone wants to be doing what you're doing, frankly. So what's your approach? Yeah, I think our approach to that has always been to just focus on what we do, just to really keep an eye on, you know, what is it that drives us? What are our original designs? And really keeping fresh designs coming to the market, just looking at our original inspiration, not trying to deviate from that and just trying to keep ahead of the competition. And I think keep on innovating, keep testing and keep pushing ourselves so that we essentially do what I think our customers expect from us, which is to bring them exciting things all the time and to keep delighting them with newness. And that is really what we focus on. How much do your customers want you to be involved in charitable partnerships You've done some amazing things, haven't you? Taught us about those and your motivations. For those, you obviously feel the responsibility yeah. to do so. I think our customers really care that we care. Our customer really wants to know what we're doing and how we behave and how we conduct ourselves and what we care about. And I think they care that we care. And I think that is definitely, we know that for a fact. Do you think that's a younger generation? Not just the younger generation. I think, you know, demographic is quite broad. And we find that our older customer also really cares. And in fact, a lot of our older customers are themselves involved in a lot of charitable things. And that's also how I've got involved in some of these charities. So sometimes they brought that to me, which has been really amazing. And my personal focus has always been on working with charities that were close to what we do. So whether it's something to do with women, with Women for Women International, because, you know, I think for me, any charity around women is very important. Or working with EACH, which is an East Anglian charity, which is quite close to us, you know, being that we're based in Norfolk. I've done a charity events in this studio with, you know, local ladies who, just to raise money for some of the local charities here as well. In India, in Jaipur, near our factory, I'm working with a school charity that opens schools in slums and educates slum children. And I went to visit them in March and I'm going to do a lot more with them because some of these slums are literally right next to where we cut our stones and we're trying to do programs also of training and really giving back to the communities immediately around where we are is quite important. But if charity comes to me and says, oh, can you donate a bracelet? I want to raise money. We always try and help as well because I know how much that means to them. But our main focus is to try and keep it to charities that are sort of close to, to what we do. One of the things I really want to know is how you create a brand 
that has such awareness and feels so accessible, but also feels exclusive and so desirable. So many businesses come along and they're hot one minute and not the next. And I've seen it over the years that I've run Sherlock's. Mm. How are you still the brand that we all want to shop from, despite the fact that everybody knows you, everyone knows some of it. So I thought quite a bit about that, actually, because it is a little bit like us wanting to maintain our quality and our design above everything else, regardless of how much volume or how many people we reach. And I think it's the same thing with that, keeping our brand accessible, but exclusive at the same time. So I think because our focus is on design and quality and attention to detail, and I suppose our respect for our consumers the respect that we assume that she is interested and wants to have good design regardless of the price. There is that integrity in our intention, which I think makes the product feel very special and very exclusive. And I think because our focus is so much on personalization, not just with engraving, but also in how the customer can play with the jewelry, make it their own, style it, it then becomes very personal. And I think that personal touch combined with the sort of incredible focus on quality and really good design makes it feel very exclusive and it allows us to reach a lot of people but keep it very special. It must be a bit of magic too. A lot of talent and a bit of magic because there's a lot of brands that have great qualities and, you know, try to maintain these qualities. I don't know what it is, but there's some Monica Vinader magic. We're sitting here in this incredible building in Norfolk and you have people here commuting from London. You have a big team of people here. Mm. You've obviously (laughs) also created a culture that they want to be part of. How have you done that and what advice do you have for people that want to hire good people and also might not live in you know, big cities in London? Yeah, the culture is difficult because I think as you grow, you just have to really work quite hard at keeping that ethos. And I think we'd like to think our culture is very caring, but it's also very demanding because we're quite driven and we want to do really well. You know, And I think that is a tough environment to work in. So Hiring is always really, really challenging because we are always trying to exceed all of our expectations. We talk about exceeding expectations and we laugh, but it is an important thing. So hiring is always difficult. Communicating is difficult. And we have to work really hard at it because we have the London Norfolk office. We've got the New York London, New York Norfolk. People are moving around from everywhere. But at the same time, I feel that that is a reflection of the company that we are. We are a very diverse group of people from lots of different nationalities so the diversity in the office is big we are working in a sort of global world where people are on email on skype on hangouts all the time so i think our culture does reflect you know the times that we live and it works but it is something we think about a lot i think we still have to do a lot more and the more we grow the more we're going to have to do so we do as much as we can but i think there is more to do to communicate and integrate and share that vision so it was you and your sister. Yes. Who came next into the business? And for people listening, what roles that you created early on were really key to you moving forward? So, yes, it was Gabby and I at the beginning, and we really did divide and conquer. So there was two sides of the business. And we really, at the beginning, focused on finding people under us that could help us do our job and that we could, you know, delegate some of the day-to-day running of things. I cannot honestly remember who came <laughs> first. I have to think, I mean, we probably hired somebody in press then we probably hired somebody in sales and Megan came in on VM and then she moved to manage EMEA and then she moved on to manage NPD. So, you know, it was a sort of as the needs came about. I think 
probably roles that have been transformational recently are CFO appointment. I think that has been transformational. I think, you know, getting really good heads of regions and building really what we call our senior management team, that was really important. So getting those people on board, you know, someone really strong on merchandising, someone really strong on web and e-com and ops and you know, somebody running song on the Asia Pacific. When we opened in Hong Kong, we needed someone to run Asia Pacific. So those heads were really pivotal. They're all still with us. And I think building that was really important. But I wouldn't say that building everybody underneath it has not been just as important because mm-hmm. everybody, I mean, That's this is, yeah, yeah. It's, everybody's got a part to play. So just building the team all together is a really huge undertaking. Mm-hmm. And, you know, there are some very senior roles that, you know, have taken us a very long time to hire. So those senior roles, you have to really plan to get the right person. You really want to get the right person. And so you need to give yourself time to to do that. You mentioned press. In terms of marketing and PR, has there been anything you've done over the years that have really paid off? If I think back when we started and we had no money and I had somebody from Norfolk move to London and do the press in-house and we were really sending loans to the press and gifts to the press and we really work with very few people. We just try to be as picky as what we could afford, really. Mm-hmm. And at that time, I think certainly the, the British press were incredibly responsive, very supportive. And I think that really kind of started the ball rolling and really allowed us to have a voice and to have some awareness. We just knew very few people, but we really just worked with what we had. And that really, really paid off. I think over the years, it's just been maintaining, you know, the visibility and the relationships. And then things are changing because, of course, the press is now mostly digital and, you know, it's a changing landscape. And really us moving with that has been very important. You've done all this whilst having a family. We always want to know how. Words well, I've only got one child. You're still a mother. It's still a juggle. I don't know how women do it with multiple kids. I take my hat off to them because I've had my fair share of challenges with just the one It's difficult because I think my business is also my other baby. I mean, I love the business. I love what I do. And so naturally you want to spend almost as much time engaged with that as with your family. So for me, there's a separation because I have forced myself to make a separation for my sanity. But I think at the beginning, there was a lot less of a separation. I sort of was a lot more kind of drawn in. I think I've learned to have more weekends and more holidays without work and really just traveling on a Monday, not on a Sunday when I go and fly internationally. So I have a Sunday at home. I've learned the hard way. I don't think there's a really good balance. I've just had amazing help. You know, I've had grandparents and husband and nannies and then school and then friends that help you. And, you know, Mm -hmm. it's sort of a whole set of network of things that make it happen and make it possible. But if you love what you do, it's very difficult because you're torn between Mm -hmm. two loves, really. So true. And you said you always had entrepreneurial spirit, ambition. What qualities in you do you think have helped you achieve all of this? I think I've got good business acumen and I think I've inherently I'm a trader you know I think I'm a shopkeeper at heart I think I've seen it at home you know I've kind of grown up with it so I kind of have extra sense but I think in terms of an entrepreneur I think I've had the courage of my conviction to follow what I really believed in I think incredible work ethic I think I work really hard and I'm quite driven 
I'm quite hard on myself and I do drive myself quite hard. And I think both Gabby and I have that quality, that sort of drive of just get it done. And I think that's sort of a quality that we sort of grown up with. Seeing my mother's very dynamic and she's always been sort of pushed so many boundaries when I was growing up in Spain and she had her own business and she was always incredibly dynamic. And I think you sort of live and breathe that and it's sort of part of who you are. Mm. And I think a resilience as well. I think resilience is important to really allow you to fail and pick yourself up again and just continue just to drive what you want, the belief that you are onto something and not give up. I don't give up easily. Any parting words of advice for women sitting there thinking, shall I do it? Or I'm in the early stages of business and finding it tough. I get that question a lot. It is tough. It is tough. There's no doubt if you're going to do it, you need to be prepared to work really hard and to have some tough times. There's no doubt. But I think you kind of only live once. That's my thing. And just do it. Just give it a go. And if you fail, you fail. I think people are so scared of failing. They don't have the courage to put themselves out there sometimes. And you've only got one life. Mm. My father thought I was crazy when I went to live in Mexico with my husband to do something completely unrelated to what I was doing in London. And career-wise, it seemed like a disaster. But I sort of always followed what I really wanted to do. And, you know, no one can take that away from me. I did what I really wanted to do. And that is an important thing in life. Just don't always mortgage your house. (laughs) (laughs) Unless you're very sure. Were you ever tempted to bring your husband into the business? No, 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 no. I used to work with him. So we've done that. We did that for many years. Been there, done that. Don't need to do it again. Yeah, no, it works much better now because, well, now I've got my sister. So I've swapped a husband for a sister. I think if I had both of them at work, that could be disastrous. (laughs) Fair enough. (laughs) And would you encourage your own daughter to, follow in your entrepreneurial footsteps do you know what what was really amazing about my parents is that they never tried to steer us towards what they were doing they kind of let us be who we were and that was something that I really appreciated it and I would always try and do the same with my daughter and not trying to force her into anything but try to let her find who she is and what she wants to do and I think our parents were fantastic that way they just let us follow our path and do what we wanted to do and they never really try to influence and despite the fact that my certainly my father did not want me to go to art school he wanted me to take the degree that I got accepted to do but he still supported it wholeheartedly and they always supported us with our vision and with our path and I hope that I will do the same with my daughter and not try to sort of (laughs) you can come and do my spreadsheets but I think you know hopefully I'll be able to give her some work ethic and inspiration and some work experience and Hopefully, whatever she applies it to, you know, that will be her thing. But she'll maybe learn that your work is important. And hopefully she'll learn that what I learned, which is I always wanted to earn my own money as a woman and I wanted to be independent, financially independent. And to me, that's the most important thing. Here, here. Well, I think that is the perfect note to end on. Monica, what a pleasure to talk to you. Thank you so much for having us. My pleasure. Thank you so much for having me. That's it for this week. If you enjoyed that, then do please rate, review, subscribe, tell your friends, and we will be back soon. Bye-bye. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here, and it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt-free. Hello, fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at hellofresh.com. 